Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now is the best time of the year to support the podcast. For we have reached the dog days of summer. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 421 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3, Recovery and Reacclimation. Wally, I think we'll repeat what we said before, that the three astronauts should be mighty happy they took seasickness pills uh, (laughs) before this. They've been on the water 35 minutes, uh, 35 and a half minutes so far. NASA had said it would take at least 35 minutes to get them aboard the USS New Orleans. And it uh, certainly will take them a bit longer than that. We particularly feel this sense of closeness in the spacecraft because it's humid. The air comes from the outside. It's brought in through ducting and blown over your face. But it's, uh, I think it was 63 degrees Fahrenheit out there, which isn't exactly a hot day. But it's kind of stifling. And then you can see the motion that the spacecraft's going through. It's not, as I've always said, a very good boat. (laughs) They're pulling the line from the ship now, at least it looks that way, and they'll hook that, there's a, something called a mercury hook on that line, and they'll hook that to the top of the spacecraft, the ship will move alongside and lift it on board, the men are still in the command module, it's reported they say they are in good shape, although communication either from the ship to us or from the command module to the ship to us isn't too good, we haven't heard too much from the astronauts themselves. 59 days, Wally, and this concludes what may turn out to be the most the best flight from a scientific point of view oh, it uh, in the history me. of space. It space does travel. amaze me how much data they've got on board. I think you had some numbers of how many film shots they took. But well, 18 miles of magnetic tape readings of Earth resources. They have about 94,000 frames of film of the sun and the Earth. And uh, the solar astronomers are just giddy with anticipation. They say that a, that a revolution is upon them in terms of their science. This is all good new data that we've been paying for. I I really do believe that the data you see aboard this command module and hopefully the next will be a great payoff to man here on Earth when we think of the energy crisis and everything else. It isn't a flight uh, that has had no trouble. They've had some trouble on board, Wally. That's it for now. Morton Dean and Wally Schirra from CBS News Space Headquarters, New York. Forty minutes after the service propulsion system on the service module ignited to begin deorbit, Skylab 3's command module landed in the Pacific Ocean, 250 miles southwest of San Diego. The mission lasted 59 days, 11 hours, and 9 minutes, 
surpassing the previous record set by the Conrad crew. Albine set a new world endurance record for time in space with over 1,671 hours over his two space missions. The ship moving in now to uh, hoist the command module aboard the, sh- the ship. 520 yards away now, the ship reports. 43 minutes later, the astronauts were hoisted onto the deck of the prime recovery ship, USS New Orleans. While Al Bean was waiting in the command module to be hoisted up, he recalled this, quote, On the water, it was okay. I felt heavy, but not especially weak or anything. And so they hoisted us out of the water, and they started taking us out. We had our G-suits inflated, which I thought was a waste of time. Until I stood up. And then they brought us out of the command module and helped us, which I didn't think we needed. I tell you now, I think we really needed it. A lot. In the apo- well, here we are. We're live now. Knocking on the door, did he? <laughs> yes, sir. May we I should, come in? <laughs> uh, any, any second now, we should be able to catch a glimpse of the astronauts. But first, one of the doctors, Dr. Paul Buchanan, the chief crew surgeon, will go into the command module and take blood pressure and pulse readings. And uh, he will determine, after consulting with the astronauts, whether or not they will walk out, be carried out, or just uh, how much help they'll get. Looks like they have some Won't safety they let them in? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just wondering. They've got <laughs> after too many 59 lashes. days together and uh, half a day in that command module, there we don't go. want to leave. There we go. Great. The end of the longest mission, the longest journey in the history of mankind, over 24 million miles. Dr. Buchanan will now get into that module and take some medical readings. USS New Orleans, and this was his videotape of what occurred just moments ago. Jack Lausma, the Marine Corps Major, the first member of the crew to set foot on board the helicopter carrier. And Wally, he looks pretty good. He really does. I'm intrigued to notice the, uh, the doctors who are handling the crew here are carrying their protection masks now. Here we see Earthmen protecting the spacemen from contamination. It's a rather interesting switch after our lunar flights. It sure is. They have a forklift there that has raised a platform up to the hatch, so the men, all they have to do is walk four or five steps out, and uh, there are chairs out there. Here comes Owen Garriott, the smallest uh, member of this crew. Looks like he's added some nice mutton chops on there. Yes, he took the first mustache up into space, at least for a U.S. spaceman. He brought it back, and then some. Third man out will be the commander, Alan Bean, and here he comes. There is some question whether they would have to be carried out. They've been away from the Earth's gravitational pull for 59 days. They really look quite good. They sure do. You'll notice that they uh, strap the fellows in the seat, though. Uh, I think it's probably because the forklift is the most dangerous ride they'll have today. Probably even more <laughs> dangerous than that ride in the command module down to the Pacific. We might repeat that the USS New Orleans is on station in the Pacific, about 220 miles southwest of San Diego, and there they go aboard the forklift. Six or seven hours of medical examinations awaiting them, although NASA physicians have said that if they're too tired or don't want to go 
go along with the plan for uh, those examinations. They might cut them short and then tomorrow pick up with the rest of them. The ship will take the men into San Diego. The men will stay aboard the ship tomorrow night and they'll be flown to Houston, Texas on Thursday, arriving there late in the day. For Wally Shira and Morton Dean, that's it from CBS News Space Headquarters, New York. Dean now continues his recollection. They set us down in chairs, and I can remember sitting in those chairs for a ceremony on TV. And I can remember thinking, I hope this gets over soon because I just don't feel good. I didn't think I would faint, but I didn't feel right. So I wasn't into any ceremony. I was more interested in lying down. So we sat down with our legs apart. We were all sitting wide stance because of our lack of stability. We got through that. I felt like I faked it through because I didn't let anybody know how much I wanted to lie down. Then they had to walk us down to sick bay for tests. We, we will be bringing the line down shortly. The uh, three Skylab, uh, three crew members, Al Bean, Owen Garriott, Jack Lausma, are now in the mobile laboratory uh, going in, inside the lab at approximately 23 hours, 20 minutes, Greenwich Mean Time. All three uh, walked outside of the, or stepped out from the uh, command module and walked over to a seated position. All three uh, looked good, Johnny and Spirits, and are now undergoing their start of their six-hour physical exam. Bean continues, I can remember walking along with the doctors on either side and thinking, they don't need to be there. But twice, maybe three times during the walk, I suddenly pitched left to right, and they held me up kept me from falling. And I can remember saying, boy, this ship is sure rolling. And they didn't say, no, it's you, which they knew it was. But I didn't because it didn't make sense that I could suddenly pitch left or right. I never knew that was the problem initially. I don't ever remember having vestibular problems ever again. It was later that I began to understand that the ship never rolled. It was me pitching off. So it wasn't that I was dizzy. It was like a sudden loss of my balance. Feeling, I think, was uh, one where uh, your legs feel strong enough and it doesn't feel like it's too heavy to move your body around. But... Uh, I think your lateral balance is sort of funny. It's, we didn't seem to have much problem with uh, wanting to pitch forward or backwards. It was mostly the sideways uh, correction. Bean continues. And so we got down to the test facility, and the NASA doctors laid us on a table and started monitoring us. And boy, it sure felt good to lie down. After a while, they deflated my G-suit, and then they had me sit up for a while and watched my blood pressure and pulse. I guess the blood pressure went down and the pulse went up, or whatever it does. 
They never said, because they didn't want to affect the data, I guess. But I could tell. Then they had me lie down again. I can remember going through this period and not really feeling good, wanting to lie down all the time. That's what I wanted to do. But they wanted to get me physically ready to ride the exercise bike again. So they set me up again and looked at my vital signs. After a time, they had me stand up. Well, my pulse and blood pressure didn't like standing up, so the doctors had me sit down. During this time, other doctors were performing the same evaluations on Owen and Jack. I could see both were further along in recovery than I was. That was motivation for me to do better, but there was nothing I knew to do. And we would hold on, but I wanted to lie down. Finally, they got me on the bike. I think I was the last one on the bike, but I got on the bike and I rode the bike. I'm sure I didn't do very well, but I didn't faint or anything. And I sure was glad to lie down again. We probably did the lower body negative pressure, which I probably had to punch off without fainting, because several times in orbit I had to punch off, or nearly had to punch off. By punch off, beam means relieve the negative pressure on the lower half of his torso, which tends to pull blood in your legs and may cause fainting. Being continues. For me, the toughest thing in the flight was the lower body negative pressure. I dreaded that thing because I really had to concentrate almost like when you're pulling G's to keep conscious in aircraft aerobatic maneuvers. I've since found out that I'm a low blood pressure guy. It's just something that's good in a way to be low blood pressure, but it's bad in another way. I remember then, for the next two or three days, not wanting to either sit up or stand up much, so every chance I got, in debriefing or anywhere else, I'd lie down. I'd get out of my chair and lie down on the floor and prop my head up and talk. It took me two or three days to finally feel normal. It probably took some time to get the lower body negative pressure and bicycle ergonometer back to normal as well. End quote. It would take a couple of days for the crew to regain their steadiness, a normal part of the readaptive process. Many hours of medical tests would follow in which all data would be within normal limits. Long-term medical effects would take several weeks to analyze. But for now, they felt well. Their spirits were high, and they looked forward to home and family. Here's how Jack Lausma recalled his reacclimation experience. Quote, Upon return, we had a really long day. We had to get ready to come home and get picked up. We felt like going to bed when we got back, and the doctors wanted to keep us up and do all these medical experiments. 
I remember just really being up longer and feeling more tired than I imagined I would be to get all the medical stuff done on the deck of the ship. The medics weren't always best friends with some of the guys, but I never felt that way about them. We cooperated with them no matter what it was. To do an experiment or to do some pre-flight test or post-flight test, whatever they wanted to do to get their job done, end quote. On the ship, after two months without a real shower, Garriott, who had no interest in using the shower on Skylab, finally got his chance to enjoy a long, warm, and pleasant one. He recalled, It sure felt good. Although he had been trained to take short Navy showers after three years of sea duty on destroyers, he made an exception for this one. As the crew's acclimation progressed, routine tasks occasionally took on new unforeseen difficulties. On Bean's first night back in his ship stateroom, He injured a disc in his back while moving a suitcase and had to receive treatment. He fell to the floor a few times during the night while trying to float to the bathroom like he would have done in orbit. He recalled that as being weird, but at least he didn't get hurt. He also discovered that when he turned off the light in his sleeping compartment, he was unable to walk to his bunk without falling over. His vestibular system had been completely deconditioned, and his eyes were the only thing that could help him determine which way was up. So, Bean had to turn the wall switch back on, walk to his bunk, and turn on the bunk light, and then turn the wall switch off and go back to his bunk. It took several days for his body to be able to provide a reliable sense of up and down in complete darkness. Like Bean, Lausma had a moment or two when he forgot to take into account the effects of living in a 1G environment. He recalled, quote, That first night on a ship... We were in sick bay, I guess. I was in a bed with rails on it. Noticing that the door was ajar and letting in light, I decided to get up and go close it. I grabbed hold of the rails and was going to float over there and didn't go anywhere. End quote. After preliminary medical tests on the USS New Orleans the ship steamed back to San Diego. The Skylab 2 astronauts slept late today aboard the recovery ship USS New Orleans and awoke just as the New Orleans entered the port of San Diego. After breakfast, the men underwent six hours of medical examination and physicians said they already were adapting to the gravity of the Earth after their 59 and a half days in space. Astronauts arrived in San Diego today in what doctors called surprisingly good shape after almost two months in space. They fly home to Houston tomorrow. They'll see their families there, but otherwise be in limited quarantine for about a week. When the recovery ship finally made port in San Diego, Garriott was greeted by a friendly face. 
Throughout the mission, the crew had complained about the constant calibrations they were required to make on the mass measuring devices, which they found tedious and unnecessary. Garriott made a mental note to complain vigorously to the principal investigator for these requirements when he saw him. The principal investigator was, in fact, fellow astronaut and Skylab Medical Experiments Altitude Test crew member. Remember Smeet? It was Dr. Bill Thornton. Garrett recalled, quote, When we docked in San Diego, the first person I saw on the pier was Bill, carrying the biggest bottle of champagne I've ever seen and wearing a grin from ear to ear, a lengthy stretch of real estate. My resolve evaporated in moments. End quote. 48 hours after recovery, they were back in Houston to receive welcome celebrations and to continue the post-flight debriefing and medical evaluations. The mission crew and hardware, despite early problems, had performed well in light of overachieved pre-mission expectations. I didn't know we had so many friends. I'm glad to see you all here today. Reunion took place at Houston's Ellington Air Force Base amid welcome home ceremonies. Just as they will for many months to come, the crew attempted to share some of their experiences. Experiences out of which a store of knowledge was gleaned that will shed new light on our troubled planet. And experiences that have served as a proving ground for the next Skylab mission and for our future course in space. Lausma believed that it took between four days and a week for his vestibular system to fully readapt to life on Earth. He recalled, quote, I don't remember having a big vestibular problem. I don't remember having vertigo or feeling dizzy. The vestibular response that took the longest was to walk in a straight line. Our muscles and our brains didn't work together on lateral motions because we hadn't simulated any of this. Only straight ahead bicycling motions. We were strong, but we hadn't used those sensors that are used to do lateral I remember getting back to the office in Houston in a big, wide hall. I'd be going somewhere, and all of a sudden, I'd find myself on the other side of the hall, and I didn't mean to be there. I wasn't falling over, but I meandered for three or four days, probably something like that. Your whole sensory system recalibrates itself. The doctor said I was back in my pre-flight shape in six days. That's overall. But when I got back, I felt lightheaded when we had to stand up. We had less blood volume, I think, and fewer red cells. For the first week or so, when I went home, when there was things to be done, I didn't feel bad. I just felt lazy. Other elements of the readjustment took longer. I measure myself on how fast I can run two miles, and I have that pretty well documented personally. 
I was running two miles between 12 minutes and 30 seconds and 13 minutes. I shot for less than 13 minutes. I guess 12 minutes, 25 seconds was the fastest I ever ran. But I could usually come in around 12 minutes, 45 seconds. I was under 13 on a regular basis. If I wasn't, I was disappointed. It took three weeks to return to the same speed as I had left with. So, it all depends on how you measure it. One of the funny things that happened after I was home for about five days or so, I was shaving one morning. And I used shaving lotion and got myself all shaved up. I picked up the shaving lotion with one hand and attempted to toss it to the other with this sort of quick push that would have done the job on Skylab. On Earth, of course, the bottle dropped immediately. Pow! Right in the sink. Smash the whole bottle. End quote. For Alan Bean, the conclusion of Skylab 3 was not only the highlight of the mission, but also one of the proudest moments of his life. He recalled, quote, It sounds strange, but for me, it was when we landed on the water. I felt like, and I still feel this way, that we had given the best we had for 59 days. That meant a lot, and still does mean a lot. I felt that mission was, from my viewpoint, the highlight of my career as being the best astronaut that I could be. I felt like our crew was the best crew we could be because we had done the best we could. We got sick. We couldn't help that. We bundled along. And then we went normally. And then we went to overdrive to catch up. And then we passed. So we ended up coming up with a great percentage. End quote. Bean said he was very proud of a report published after the mission summarizing the crew's accomplishment, reflecting the fact that they had accomplished 150% of their assigned objectives. On October 12, 1973, the top headline of the Johnson Space Center's Roundup newsletter read, quote, Skylab 3 Super Crew gets 150% of mission goals, end quote. Here are a few excerpts from that newsletter. Quote, Although the Skylab 3 mission has been completed, scientists and principal investigators will be busy for years analyzing data from the experiments performed by astronauts Bean, Lausma, and Garriott. Kenneth Kleinick, Skylab's program office manager, said at the post-flight press conference that the crew brought back to Earth more than 150% of their goal in scientific data. With the longer-duration missions, the crew gets more proficient because of in-flight training and experience. Reg Michelle, manager of the Orbital Assembly Project Office, said that several new things which had never been observed before were recorded in this mission. 
Among these new items were coronal holes or voids in the sun's corona. Experimenters found that the velocity changes of the gases and of the material moving across the sun were much higher than anticipated. Data was also gathered on major solar flares. Over 10,000 frames were taken with the multispectral camera, 2,000 frames with the Earth terrain camera, and 25,000 frames with the visual tracking system. The multispectral scanner, infrared spectrometer, and microwave sensors recorded over 90,000 feet of magnetic tape data. The VTS film turned out to be better in this mission than the previous mission from a standpoint of resolution and clarity of Earth sites. This Earth resources data is about three times the amount of data gathered on Skylab 2, Michelle said. Also, the beginning and ending stages of Tropical Storm Christine were covered as were African drought areas, Mount Etna, an active volcano, and a severe storm in Oklahoma. Okay, that's the end of the excerpt. Beam finished his recollection by saying, quote, I've always been proud of this article. That's why I have it in my briefcase, even though I haven't looked at it for a long time. I've had it there. We were called a super crew. We were. Nobody had done that. We did. Compared to previous mission estimates, more than any crew had ever done in any program, and we started out behind. So we really were as great as we could be. I felt good about that. That's the primary feeling I have about Skylab, is just, wow, we did what we wanted to do. We did the best we could do. You have to find a way to accomplish the goal. We were able to do that. We went 56 days and three more. Even with all the thruster problems, we accomplished the goal. End quote. Jack Lausma said, quote, Maybe the best way to characterize it for me was the final impression I had when we were rolling out in the command module on the water. I felt the most professionally satisfied I have ever felt, with the exception of the Columbia mission I commanded. About equal, I guess. That, number one, we were alive, and number two, we did a good job. We'd not only done the best we could, but we got it all done, and it really did a good job. That was the most rewarding professional sense I ever had was on both flights, and that professional satisfaction lasted a long time after the Skylab mission. If I had never flown another mission, I would have been satisfied that I had done a great job on my space flight and had been professionally rewarded, end quote. Owen Garriott said, quote, I have asked myself, to whatever extent it is true, what are the reasons for our success on this mission? No doubt, a commitment to doing the best one can was important, and even Allen's positive mental attitude was to some degree contagious. 
An adequate degree of competence is obviously essential. But the one overriding characteristic of our flight, even the whole Skylab program, is that of team spirit. We had it to a greater degree than experienced in any other group I've been involved with in my career. How else can the 10-day effort to save Skylab be explained? After all the problems that arose when Skylab was launched on May 14, 1973, the thousands of Skylab team members had it too. I believe it was that unquenchable team spirit that was the most important single characteristic responsible for our success and that of the whole program. It should not be overlooked that this characteristic is definable and teachable in other situations for those who are willing to make the not insignificant commitment to maximum achievement. End quote. After a rough start with sickness and spacecraft problems, the second manned Skylab mission became one of the most successful scientific space endeavors. The crew had exceeded all scheduled requirements for the mission and accomplished nearly twice as much scientific work as planned. Skylab was fulfilling its objectives, providing reams of data and photos to answer many questions about the sun, the earth, and of man's ability to live in space for extended periods of time. With two successful flights under their belt and only one more mission planned, expectations were high that the last mission would be even better than the first two. For Carr, Gibson, and Pogue, it would be a tough act to follow, but they were determined to make their flight the most memorable and rewarding one yet. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 421 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab 3, Recovery and Reacclimation. Our next episode should be released on or about September 7th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the, in the text box on the right side of the page. You'll have to scroll down a bit to see that text box. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 239 are available on the archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Make sure you put the word archive in there or it doesn't work sometimes. should be available on most podcatchers, and that includes Spotify. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist, and you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History, and I'm also available on Patreon at patreon.com slash History. 
had just a few afterthoughts here, as always. I apologize for my mispronunciations. Okay, we have wrapped up a great mission with this episode, and next time we will be moving along with the third and possibly the final crew of Skylab, which will be called, of course, Skylab 4. (laughs) You know how the numbers work if you don't listen to the earlier episodes. (laughs) NASA got so much data from that mission, and crew adaptability may have been one of the most important. They had no way to simulate lateral motion in space, so when the crew came back, they wound up deviating to the left or right. It is hard to walk a straight path. But the bike, see, the bike only simulated a uh, straight-ahead motion, so they didn't really have anything to uh, keep their lateral motion tuned in. Now, will they somehow come up with a procedure to simulate lateral motion on the third Skylab mission, which will be Skylab 4? Or will it take longer than that? This is something to keep an eye on. It is really good information to discover, and as far as I know, NASA was not expecting this at all. Of course, they, the crew did reacclimate fairly quickly, but think about it. What if they, they were doing this kind of in preparation for a long-duration flight to Mars? So you don't want to make it to go to Mars and then have your astronauts falling over sideways after they land, you know. So we've got to have, we've got to have some type of simulated gravity on the way or we've got to have some type of means of compensating for lateral motion deficiency. More research is needed. Did you observe the competitive nature of the astronauts? You know all these astronauts were alpha types, extremely competitive. I won't say all. The early ones especially, the ones that were test pilots and uh, fighter jockeys, they they were always competitive. And uh, Albine still wanted to be competitive, (laughs) but yet he really built these guys, his crew, into a team that wanted their mission to be the best. They worked together so well and accomplished 150% of their goals after such a tough start. You might say, impressive, most impressive. At least uh, Darth Vader might say that. There were, <laughs> they were all proud of that title they received, Super Crew, and they earned it. And what really amazes me is being called the this Skylab mission the highlight of his career. Now, I would have thought him being the fourth man to walk on the moon, how do you top that, you know, by being the first, I suppose, but he couldn't do that. He was the fourth man to walk on the moon, but that pretty much seems like a career highlight to me. But he called this mission his career highlight. And uh, he did, he was fourth, and actually Pete had him running around on the moon a lot of the time because they were trying to hurry up and get things done 
only to have to sit and wait. Check out that Apollo 12 series if, if you don't remember. Finally, a little bit of personal news. Feel free to skip this part if you want. In personal news, the soybeans in the 15-acre field are growing marvelously. They'll, they'll soon reach their peak and start to dry out, and those things, you get them to dry out on the vine till they are extremely dry. And when, when the, we harvest them, they create this big, big cloud of dust that just covers everything. It covers the house, covers the, <laughs> covers the neighbors, covers everybody out here when they harvest those uh, soybeans because they're so dried. But uh, the uh, personal garden over there is uh, mostly weeds now. But uh, we're still getting s- some watermelons out. And the, one, the ones we had are good. Those things are good. And we got some really good cantaloupes, too. And we got some tomatoes. So uh, we didn't do too bad on the personal one, but the weeds got ahead of us on that. It was just too hot to go out and weed or a lot of it. We, we, we didn't get, you know, we didn't get super hot here over this summer. I guess the summer's still going on. The dog days are still going on, that's for sure. But we didn't get super hot. We got in the 90s, which is pretty much typical for this area. And, uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't super hot. Like out of the, like I know, I know other places got super hot. But but around here it wasn't that bad. But uh, you know around here it's a moist heat. You know it's very humid. So I've been told that the dry heat is more favorable. Anyway, continuing on. Thanks to those who wrote in and checking on my mother-in-law's health. Uh, she still hasn't taken the test yet to see if she will be allowed to have the valve replacement surgery. That is scheduled, but she has to wait. You know, that's the way that's the way healthcare works here. So we're still waiting for that. And uh, that's about all the personal news I have for this episode. Well, as I mentioned, it is the dog days of summer. And uh, remember last time I told you we lost 12 patrons. Well, we got about five of them back somehow. They uh, they came back and they filled out the form like they were supposed to or something. I don't know. They clicked the right boxes and, and it worked, but we're still missing seven. We're still, anyway, we're probably not going to give them back. But uh, some of them I would have thought we'd get back because some of them have been uh, donating since the uh, teens, you know. So uh, like 14 or 15. So I'd expect, I'm surprised to lose some of those. Anyway, if you're one of those people, we would love to have you back. Okay, let's talk about donations. Over the past fortnight, we received five new donations and pledges. And I would like to thank Stephen B. from North Carolina, who donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Mike S. donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Michael L. from Washington donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Robert G. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Alan J. in Kuala Lumpur increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. We appreciate very much anything that's helpful during these dog days of summer. We definitely appreciate it. Our total Patreon donors are now at 223, and that 
233, excuse me, 233. And that is, as I say, we gained five back. Before the debacle, we were at 240 patrons. So, our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023, have reached 324, with an overall goal of 450 for this year. And I appreciate you guys giving on Venmo. That is a, a, I get a, a full contribution there, as well as Zelle, both of those, and checks. I get a full contribution. They don't seem to be taking any money out for those. But I appreciate you guys doing that. So... If you are enjoying this podcast, that has been running now over 10 and one half years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check or Venmo or Zelle uh, using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Well, Mike has successfully made another trip around the sun, and I hope you will join me in wishing him many more. Happy birthday, Mike. I did not think it would still, he would still be doing this podcast for over 10 years, but, you know, it's listeners like you that keep him going. Okay. Now for the winner for this episode, remember you'll get the choice of the SRH Archive Magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA Meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Devin Moore. Devin Moore, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaladick, Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 422 posted on or about September 7th. So long for now.